This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. I was going to start it differently today, Tom. I was going to start singing, you know, I like Ike, you like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president, but then... Now you're just giving it away. Usually I say what the topic is. I know. You're, you're, kind of, you're kind of giving it away a little bit. Okay? But at the same time, it's just so catchy. Every time I teach this, that song is literally, or jingle, I should say, is literally stuck in my head for the remainder of that week. Every, really it see, never I kind fails. of compare... When I was, when you were saying that, I was remembering the uh, song from the '90s, "Be Like Mike," <laughs> the Michael, the Michael Jordan song. Oh yeah, no, yeah. See, sports no. me, not a thing. But nope. you know Michael Jordan. Well, of course I know Michael Jordan. I've Michael seen Jordan. Space Jam. No, I'm just kidding. I know, I know who Michael Jordan is. Good, but that, that's that's what I say. For Good. those of, <laughs> for those of us uh, for those of you guys that are listening, rather, um, I like Ike is uh, is a very famous jingle. It's actually the first ever really televised um campaign a presidential campaign where you had jingles and you had commercials this was the real deal the first one so anyway tommy what are we talking about today okay well yeah we're gonna be talking about a um well supreme allied commander in europe 34th president of the united states dwight d eisenhower what a name which wasn't actually his name well we'll get to that yes yeah did you see that something I saw that. I'm aware of the situation. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Ike. Um, commonly, by the way, he his nickname Ike stems from his parents named older children Ike, and Everyone it was like was, I just was getting to you. They had yeah. seven boys, right? Yep. And, and it was big Ike, Ike, little Ike. Like they just had like they called older kids little Ikes, and apparently that stemmed from their last name. It's it a prevision of the last name. Yeah. Yep. So they called everyone Ike, and and by the time they became adults, the only nickname that really stuck was dwight's nickname he just he was the only one that remained ike yeah everyone else they kind of grew out of it but not him exactly so he was born in on october 14th 1890 which is crazy when you think about it right 1890 uh, i know whatever you hear about these he's born in the 1800s but yeah i mean if he he was in he was what like in his 50s and during the second world war so okay that makes sense then but i don't know that always sticks out when you see someone born like before the, the turn other of the century. century, the other yeah. century, was yeah. what the other, other, the other other century. Because now yeah. we're in uh, 2000s. That's funny. The other other century. When he, when actually, when he stepped down from the presidency at the age of 70, he was the oldest person to have been president at that time. Well, that changed. That changed, uh, obviously. Um, however, <laughs> born, uh, like I said, born 1890. He was born in Texas, and then they wind up moving. The family winds up moving to Kansas, right, Abilene, Kansas. Uh, his father was a mechanic. Um, in like a local creamery, apparently. And the mom was like a very, very ultra religious stay at home mom. She was very much against war. And based on my research, I think she eventually became a Jehovah's Witness. Growing up overall, I mean, like you mentioned before, it was a bunch of boys in the family. He, uh, they were very, very specific, by the way, and then very intense with their, with their kids. So everyone had chores to do, um, but they also preferred and really liked to go hunting, fishing and playing football. And another thing is that was interesting is even though his mom was very much opposed to war, she had a collection of books in her home or their home and had a pretty decent collection of military books. And that's kind of how Ike got really involved as a little kid and in, in being interested in warfare. Um, yeah, he was, he was a big um, outdoorsman, but he was yep. reading those books when he wasn't outdoors, but in the winter yep. or whatever, 
he would basically read these books and he became um, really interested in military history, yep. basically. And that's one thing that spurred that interest in him, why he decided to then move into that, do well, attend West Point and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And then yeah, so the he, history. Well, that's the thing. So he goes, he goes to West Point and that he was, again, he was an athlete. This guy was very athletic. Um, so when he went into West Point, he said one of the greatest disappointments of his life Um, And this, you know, he said this later before his death. And this is a guy that was like responsible for so many things in life. He said, greatest disappointment was not making the West Point baseball team. I don't know if you saw that. Well, he had a big injury. I don't know if you saw that when he was younger. Yeah, he played football, right? At high school, yeah, he was a freshman. He injured his knee really bad and actually developed a um, a leg leg infection that went all the way up to like his groin. And the doctor said, this is, listen, this is life threatening. We have to amputate your leg. Yeah, and that. he refused to allow it to happen. Like again, this is also what like nineteen teens. Yeah, not even he refused probably. to let it happen. And he did recover, but he um he was basically out of school for an entire year. He had to repeat his entire freshman year. Yeah. Um, and he wanted to go to college, but the family just really didn't have any any money really to do it. So they took alternate years. Um, they made a pack, but him and his brother Edgar they took alternate years at college while the other one worked to earn tuition. So he would go one year. And the next year he would take off and he would work and then his brother would go and they would alternate back and forth on who would pay. That's crazy. Yeah, never go because they just didn't have the money otherwise to go to college. It's hardworking, yeah, like think about yeah. it. Yeah, and very like blue collar family. He um he actually applies to West Point, which is extremely difficult to get into. He applies basically on like an athletic scholarship, but mainly because there was no tuition that was required because you couldn't really afford to continue going to any other school. And he meets with a U.S. senator and because that's kind of how it works. And the U.S. senator grants him the consideration to go to West Point. So he go, takes an entrance exam, gets in there, and he makes the varsity football team while he is there. And actually, uh, he was a running back and a starter for West Point football team, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, did you know and see this interesting fact that in one of his games, um, they moved him to linebacker in 1912 for one game. And in that game, he tackled the yes. legendary Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe. Yeah, that was a big deal. We talked about Jim Thorpe, future, right. pod, uh, future podcast, past podcast yep. on the archives. Look it up. Yeah. Um, but he actually wound up re-hurting his, um, he did suffer a torn knee there, right? In the very next game, yep. which was the last he ever played because then he re-injured his knee on horseback. And he also boxed a lot too, so he was pretty much um, done after that. He did do some sports. I think he went to um, gymnastics and fencing just to like stay active and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, believe it or not, he was also a um, cheerleader. Also, I saw that. <laughs> which is a lot. Of, which is well, ah, right. a lot of present. That, that's big back then. Hey, you're putting kind of like that, you know, 1950s, you know, spin on things. But bef- before that, yeah, this time, is the cheerleaders. Were, I mean, this is yeah, it's 1912. Cheerleaders were boys. That's what they were. Just yeah. basically get everything, get the crowd pumped up to Lee, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. So, yep. so he graduated um, in the middle of his class, 1915, right? He wasn't anything special in school from what I saw. Not at all. Actually, he graduated um, he 61st. Like yeah, 61st out of 164 students. He was literally the definition of just an average Joe. However, if you look at the, his graduating class for West oh, yeah, Point. They, a fancy class, yeah. Yeah, they called the class that the stars fell on because 59 members out of those 160 um, became general officers. Oh, these are all, yeah. I mean, Omar, Bradley, Omar Bradley was in that class, right? Yep, yep, he was, I mean, he was. Yeah, so you have all these guys. I mean, it, it is a, it's a who's who of names we're going to know later on. Yep. So he graduated from West Point, and he's kind of stationed in, in all over the place, right? Um, takes is a stint as a second lieutenant at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. That's actually where he meets the 18-year-old um, that becomes his wife. Yeah, I should know Mame this. Dowd. Mame Dowd. Mame Dowd. 
so after that, he's moved to Maryland. Um, that's when he becomes friends with George S. Patton. Um, and this is kind of interesting. I don't know if you saw this. So Eisenhower and Patton wind up publishing these articles, um, scholarly articles in 1920, advocating that the United States Army should make better use of tanks uh, to prevent like repetition and you know static and destructive trench warfare in World War One. And instead of like the army seeing the brilliance in that, actually um, considered Eisenhower and Patton insubordinate and basically threatened them with court-martial if they again challenged the official yeah, the views of the U.S. Army in infantry warfare, yep, um, in scholastic journals or in historical journals. So I thought that was interesting. But just kind of going into uh, World War One, he wanted to fight in World War One. However, it did not necessarily work out for him. Um what did you have? Did you have anything for him in World War? Well, he tried. No, he he wanted to be assigned to the Philippines. That was denied. So he yeah. basically served in logistics, infantry all over the place, Texas, Georgia, nineteen eighteen. You got to remember, the United States weren't we weren't involved in the war that long. No, as far as actually sending. Yeah, he troops. never made it across. So he never actually made it across. Um, but it was during that time when his um, when his wife had their first son, who actually uh, passed away at the age of three from scarlet fever. I saw that. So that's something that definitely affected him. He just never really discussed his first son's death. His second son, John Eisenhower, lived to two, lived until 2013. And he actually, um, interesting note about him, I saw that the son, John Eisenhower, actually graduated West Point on June 6, 1944. Oh, wow. That's when he actually graduated West Point. But his son was also a- um, Wait, that's D-Day for those of you guys that good. don't remember yes, that. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I just say that date sometimes, like everybody knows I know something I mentioned it. My wife is like, what are you talking about? And I'm just like- the, the problems of being a history teacher. Yeah, I know. Like I was watching, uh, what movie was I watching last night? One, we should do a podcast on eventually, Midway. It was on TV. Uh-huh. I was watching, then my wife, oh, what's going on? I said, and she's like, how do you, what? And I'm like, yeah, forget it. Like, don't worry. Yeah, my wife it. just walks go. away. I start talking about go history. Back watching, go back to watching Hallmark. It's okay. Yeah, it's just, uh, well, now it's the, it's the season, my friend. That's how it's it rolls. It's very um, uplifting, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so anyway, getting back, <laughs> getting back to this. All right, it's uh, it's post World War One. Um, like you said, his firstborn son dies of scarlet fever. Um, he's essentially moved around a lot between different generals. He winds up with General Fox Connor in a Panama Canal zone. I don't know if you saw this, and it's Connor in 1924 that basically starts seeing that Eisenhower is a very, really, really bright tactician. Um, and he kind of sees him as like, you know, he, this guy is just like a really awesome assistant in a sense. So he gets Eisenhower commissioned to apply for the Army's prestigious graduate school, um, the Command and General Staff School, right? So this Command and General Staff School at Fort Levensworth, Kansas. And that is where Eisenhower applies, is accepted. And he graduates first in his class of 245 this time around in 1926. Yeah, it's like a big deal for him. So he, for him, he's thinking everything's going on the up. Yeah. And then it just kind of nothing really happens after that, M- mainly because in the early 1930s, when you have the Great Depression, we also have um, isolationism. His, yeah. You have that like the army kind of just re, well, just like re, well, their, their priorities changed basically. Exactly. And like a lot of his friends that he was friends with, they all resigned for high paying business jobs because they had, you know, they could make more money work in the private sector with their education because I think a lot of people weren't as well educated as they were at the time. So you could actually get these high paying jobs. And um, so he was assigned to um, the American Battle Monuments Commission, right? Where he yep. served under uh, General Pershing. All right. Um, he helped out his brother, um, who was a journalist for the U.S. Agriculture Department. So um, he would, he produced a bunch of these guides and stuff for uh, American This is kind of awesome that you're bringing this up. 
Yeah. Uh, do you see that William Randolph well, Hearst offers him a job as a journalist during this time? Yeah, because he's, he's like I said, he well, an amazing writer. Eisenhower, he was an amazing well, he was a writer. Really good writer. Yeah, and we found out later on in life he's a really good painter too, which we'll get yep. to. But um, yeah. So apparently, like he, he, yep, he was an excellent writer, and he authored speeches, letters, reports, staff studies for like top brass, like top generals, including obviously Douglas MacArthur, which we're getting to right now. Um, and the Secretary of War. So he contributed to like a guidebook on World War One battlefields. Um, it got to the point that the publishing, you know, publishing giant, William Randolph Hearst, tries to convince Eisenhower in early 1930s, like, dude, just leave the U.S. Army. Like, you become a military correspondent for my newspaper and you will make tons of cash. Um, and he actually offered him three times the amount of Eisenhower's existing pay. And Ike turned it down because he saw himself in the military, which is... You know, that's where he was. He noble. figured that was his calling. Noble. That's what he wanted to be. And um, that's just his primary duty. And he was actually assigned what he, one of the things he was doing is he was working for um, resource and strategy departments is he his duty was planning for the next war. Yeah, I was one of the things he had to do, which was very difficult. Everything going on in the depression. And then he becomes a military aide to Douglas MacArthur. In 1932. And that's when he um, becomes, I don't say he doesn't get famous from this, but he witnesses a major event in history, something I guess we could talk about uh, a little bit, which is the bonus army march, right? Yeah. On the encampment in Washington, D.C., which is basically when the um, the army is ordered to clear out all these all these um, veterans who want their bonus checks from World War One. that really wasn't supposed to be paid off, I think, until 1945 or 41, right? But they wanted their money earlier, right? Yeah. Um, because everything's gone in the Great Depression. And MacArthur actually, they fire like tear gas and they drive them out. Of the, that he was very out. much against this, but the, he was but, against it. But, yeah. but he did write. He later on, when he wrote the official report, he endorsed it because he. he yeah. That's another thing that the office general said about the early general said about MacArthur about um, Eisenhower is that he was fiercely loyal. Yep. yep. If he said he was loyal to you, that's that his word. He didn't break it. So very very loyal. Well, so that's when he was he matched up, it, but he but he listened to it. Yeah, because he was matched up, as you mentioned, he is matched up with, well, at first he was matched up with General John J. Pershing, uh, the major commander and general of World War One U.S. forces. And then he gets matched up with General Douglas MacArthur. And Douglas MacArthur does some really, you know, unpopular things at this time and even later on um, when he tries to nuke the bejesus out of China, for which he is fired yeah. eventually by Truman. But um, in this case, as you said, he just kind of stuck it out and... Uh, it led to him being moved to the Philippines in 1935 with uh, MacArthur, and he yeah, again, they, they did not get along, not they at all, not like each other. Um, and but he kind of moves with to the Philippines with MacArthur in 35. This is six years before U.S. entrance into World War II, and what he essentially does there is he trains the Army of the Philippine Commonwealth. That's kind of his assignment. Um, and then what happens is World War II breaks out in Europe in 39, and Eisenhower is recalled back into the United States. And is put in, not in charge, but is brought into the Third Army to kind of help train their, train them in Louisiana. Ultimately, it's all about training exercises. Uh, there's more like 400,000 troops that participated, and he led these trainings. Um, and it's kind of where it's revealed that Eisenhower has amazing talent for strategic planning. And that's what earned him a promotion to Brigadier General. Um, and he kind of stays in his training you know, job for a little bit until couple years later, not even, um, days after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, Eisenhower is sent for in Washington, D.C. to work on United States war plans on how to bring the U.S. forces over to yeah. the war. 
And how to defeat Japan and Germany, basically, is what he's exactly. doing. And again, he's just a brain. They see him as like this smart, he's Brigadier General, he's kind of a low-ranking general here. And the idea is like, this guy's got the brain, and people are starting to recognize that he's got the brain. He actually never fought. He never was in the front. His entire life, this guy never fought on a war front, which is crazy. I didn't know that until I started so looking think, this yeah, up. Because you think about all these other guys, they totally did. Yeah, no, he and was I, never... When you think about Eisenhower, you think of him as like, oh, this war general, which yeah. he was... Yeah, he was more the um, you know, brain. tactician. Yeah, yeah he brain. was a brain. He could figure these things out. Yep. So he impresses the Army Chief of Staff, George C. Marshall. Um, and, you know, and basically, and first of all, George C. Marshall apparently never, ever gave anybody any words of praise. He was very hardcore. And he's like, this guy's smart. This kid, we got to do something with this guy. So, but kid, I mean, he's in his 40s by now, right? Almost 50. So he basically promotes... Um, Ike. And in 1942, he, you know, he kind of goes out on a limb, George C. Marshall. And November 1942, he makes Eisenhower, puts him in command of Allied troops that invade North Africa, which is the United States' first invasion in the European front. That's Torch, right? Yep. Operation Torch. Um, it, it, it wasn't always it wasn't always great, right? No. You know, the the Ketterstine Pass, I'm sure that's something we should actually do a, a podcast on in the future, maybe. Right. Everything that happened there, like the first time, because it doesn't go well. We have, a lot of people get the misconception, oh, America's in the war, I took the war's over. No, 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 no. You know, it takes a long time for that to happen. It takes a long time before they're not, America is not, um, they're not battle ready troops at this point by, by no any means. stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And, every, the world, and the rest of the world has been at war since 39, some, some of them even longer, if you want yep. to count what's going on in Asia. So, like, they're, they, they, they know the drill, they know what they're doing if, if they're still alive at this point. The yep. Americans don't, and that kind of, you know, uh, Kerosene Pass, they um, kind of see that. I'm pretty sure that's the first scene of the movie Patton, which is, by the way, an awesome movie. I Every time it's on, like AMC or something, I just watch it. I'm like, I got to watch this movie. Great movie. Um, he got an Oscar for that, by the way, the guy that played him, Patton. So, uh, so November 42, like I said, North Africa, Operation Torch. He does so well that he is, again, assigned uh, to be the director of Invasions of Sicily and Italy, uh, which he also it does awesome in. Which basically brings us to 1944, the biggest invasion of all, um, and that is the famous D-Day invasion of Normandy. So in 1944, people, again, there was no doubt whatsoever in the Army Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, George C. Marshall, nor even with FDR, Basically, they said, this this guy's the guy. If anyone's going to do it, this guy's going to do it. Um, and he leads Operation Overlord, which is basically the Allied invasion of Nazi-occupied Western Europe. And yeah, that's where he land becomes... The sea invasion. Yeah, that, that, he, that's when he becomes a household name. People are aware of who he is and everything like that. Oh, yeah. Um, like every newspaper, Yank magazine. Basically, they said that his achievement was based off the fact that he worked really well with other Allied leaders. And although he was really bright, he was very quiet. And the idea was that he never really made it seem like he was the best person in a room, even though oftentimes he was. He knew how to handle these strong personalities like Churchill, Roosevelt and stuff like that. And he actually got um, Churchill to agree to allow him to control the uh, British Royal Air Force, basically, leading up to Operation Overlord. Because he planned out all of the strategic air forces all the bombings and stuff like that over that area, basically yeah. on Germany in order to play the groundwork. Things went really well for him. I mean, yeah. uh, after Germany surrenders, ultimately, well, first of all, so then he becomes the major allied commander of all American um, forces in Europe, 
right after after D Day. Well, it's, I know, yeah, and, and, but he's very nervous about D Day too. Like, like he also writes. I'm sure it's come out. You've seen. You can find it. He wrote like two um, speeches. One, mm-hmm. if this invasion was successful, and the second was basically his resignation letter. He basically just like says it's my fault. It's not the men's fault. I resign and stuff like that. Like he um, he was really prepared for you know if this doesn't work because it was not going to be something easy. Yep. Um, yeah, they said his infamous words or the famous words, right? When everyone around him looked at him because the weather was so bad the morning of like June 6th, they're like, all right, what, we're going to have to call it well, out. It's supposed, call to it be, off. it's supposed to be the day before. Yep. And then he basically yeah, looks yeah, at me like, it. all right, let's go. Let's just do this. <laughs> and, yeah. and they did it. Um, after Germany surrenders 1945, he is made the military governor of the U.S. occupied zone. He only stays there for a few months. Uh, he afterwards returns to the United States as pretty much a hero. I mean, people see him as the guy, kind of what happened to Grant after the Civil War. You know what I mean? Like Lincoln was obviously the national leader, just like FDR this time around. But people saw Grant as the guy that won the war for the United States. Um, and the same thing here. They see him. They see Ike as this major figure. Like he is a hero, 100%. And a few months, you know, after he gets back, he's appointed as the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, which he actually leaves in 48. And he is elected as the president of Columbia University. And he holds that position until 1950 yeah, when he decides yeah, when he decides to leave. Well, um, one thing that we kind of just skipped over, I'm sorry, Pete, that I no, think was, is important to know, is important to stress, is that Eisenhower was um, – he was aware of like, because he was a historian, right? So he was aware yeah. of like, listen, we need to document what's going on during World War II for future generations so that they realize what happened. And he really realized, he really thought that um, there would be an attempt in the future to recharacterize a lot of the war crimes that Nazi that uh, that the Nazis committed, yeah. right? Like Holocaust denial. He basically said, people are going to deny this happened. So he took steps against it by basic, basically um, demanding a lot of like pictures and photographs and documentation of the Nazi death camps actually be taken and sh- you know shown back home, shown to the soldiers, shown to people, and recorded because he wanted to prove that it happened. He can't say it didn't happen if we have this proof. So that he, that was a big uh, thing that he wanted to prove. And that he um, continues to yeah, he did a lot of them in later life too. But like, no, listen, I saw these camps; these things are real. You know, and here here's the proof. Yeah, we really stress that, which I think is really important. That now, is like really- you know, no, all these years later. Yeah. Um. After after this, again, he kind of steps back and he goes into painting. They said most of his paintings happened when he was at Columbia University. I mean, he's an older guy. He's in charge of uh, the president of the Columbia you know, Ivy League school. And that's when the people start to really court him, both the Republicans and the Democrats, because yeah. he was not a politician by any means. No, but they knew he was popular. Yep. And so both both parties were like, hey, like you want to run for president? And he was kind of like, eh, no, not right, not right now. And no one really knew whether he was a Republican or a Democrat, like where he was coming from. But then what ultimately happens is the United States gets involved in another war, or rather a military conflict, if we want to be technical. And that is the Korean War, right? And the United States soldiers, as part of NATO this time around, um, are sent to... Um, to Korea to fight again, you know, to help South Korea fight against North Korea. The war is becoming unpopular at home. And the idea is that Truman, the Democrat president at the time, is unable to get us out of this war. And who would be better to get us out of war than the one living general that supposedly in the eyes of the American people won World War II 
for the world, and that is President Eisenhower to be President Eisenhower. So that's when Ike, he kind of runs on that. Like, that's his thing. Like, I will get us out of Korea. Like, that's his big promise. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Right? No? Maybe? Yeah, he runs that. Yeah, and he, he basically, that's his, that's his campaign. He, he doesn't, basically, he's his general saying we should not be involved in another war. Yep. And then that kind of, uh, people like that because people are like, yeah, what, what are we even doing here? Yep. To a and certain he, extent. Yeah, and he was kind of a little bit, un, not friendly per se, with uh, President Truman. I, I don't know if you remember yeah. reading this. Well, oh, well Truman was basically saying he, he was trying to convince him to run with him in the next election. Like Truman said, listen, I'll be your running mate. Yeah, so you should you should run and stuff like that. But he also went against Truman with all these other things, particularly what's going on. Well, he went it's, against uh, he went against Truman in '45 when it was time to yeah. drop the bombs. Um, he was one of the very outspoken people. Eisenhower believed that we should not use the atomic weapons against Japan, um, and he said that he feared that the first use of atomic weapons in combat would tarnish the image of the United States. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, and he didn't like bombing civilians either. That was a big yeah. thing. And he he, he said a, flat out he, as he a used tactician. To fight with Churchill with that. Yeah. Yep. And as a tactician, he was very clear, saying like, "Okay, like we don't need this because at the end of the day, Japan is almost done. Like they're going to surrender." And Truman disagreed with him and ultimately dropped the bombs. So they the two they were sort of no one knew how long it would take. Yeah. So that was another yeah. thing. Like whether believe it, the war would have lasted longer without a doubt. And then he's just saying, "Listen, we're going to lose lives on both sides, and not doing that." So. Drop the yeah. bomb. That's what happened. Take it from there. Um, future podcast. Future podcast. All right. So Eisenhower decides he's going to run for president. He he did not. He, he wins. Yeah. There's a skip. He, he wins in a landslide. Yes. Yeah. Landslide. Like Four forty-two to eighty-nine. Yep. Right? First Republican in the White House for twenty years. Guys, remember this was dominated by uh, Roosevelt so long, or FDR and Truman. So it was dominated by Repu- by uh, Democrats for twenty years. Yeah. So he also brought a Republican majority in the House. In the Senate, um, so you know it's it's but that's one of those it, things where now they can get things. You know, the Republican Party is very excited about this. Yep, this is also when we get to know another uh, known politician in in American history, and that is Richard Nixon. Yep, Nixon because right. Eisenhower chooses Richard Nixon out of California to basically uh, secure votes. I mean, that's usually why they choose these running mates as his running mate. So. Uh, at the time, Nixon was young. He was thirty-nine. He was our age, Tom. You don't, yeah. You don't think of Nixon as young. No, right? he always looks like Nixon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean? yeah, but yeah. Uh, but Nixon also made a name for himself, even at thirty-nine. He, huge name nationally for investigating. Um, I don't know his. Remember that it was the idea of like perse- persecuting and investigating communists. Because again, this is at the end of the day a red scare. So he went with Nixon because Nixon had this opinion of 
being harsh on communism, and he kind of needed that. Um, he becomes the third commanding general of the army to also become president. Yeah. Washington, Grant, and him. And the biggest slogan, which is kind of what I started with, like, I like Ike. I mean, you had pins everywhere. I like Ike. You like Ike, right? Everyone likes Ike for president. Uh, if you remember watching Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, the one that people tend to want to forget, uh, which takes place in the 50s, at the beginning where the Soviets get the older Indiana Jones and they point a gun at him and they're like, and you lost words, Dr. Jones? And he looks at him and he goes, I like Ike. And I remember chuckling and my kids were like, what, what, what was that, Dad? And I'm like, ah, history. Now I have to explain it. History. Yeah. <laughs> I have um, to explain it. And yeah, so they're like 30-second advertisements. Uh, first time TV commercials ever played a role in presidential elections. And the guy was charming. People are like, dude, this guy's going to get us out of Korea. This guy, he, they have nothing on him, again, because of the whole no political aspect. Like, he doesn't have a tarnished reputation as a politician. No, which actually, yeah. yeah, and which actually follows him through his presidency because a lot of people at the time thought that all he did was play golf. They're like, he just played golf. He didn't do anything. Interestingly enough, he had a – do you see that? Um, I don't know if you saw this, but once he went to the White House, he wanted to play golf so much that he asked to um, have like a putting green put right outside the Oval Office. Except the problem is like, you know what? He wanted to go play his miniature golf over there. But the squirrels were his enemy. And like in 1954, apparently the squirrels that, yeah. kept on digging up his putting green to like bury their acorns and walnuts. And he was flipping. So he was quoted as getting out and telling one of the Secret Service men, if you see one of those like squirrels, just get anywhere near my putting green, take a gun and shoot it. So um, the Secret Service decided they were not going to do that. So they just quietly set up all of these um, traps around the area to get the squirrels. And they released them somewhere else, so that way he could play golf. He actually came to New Jersey quite a few times to play golf. He played golf everywhere. Actually, if you look at newspapers and like newsreels, wherever he went, he That's always he found time. time. Yeah. But he always golf. wanted. To, he always played golf. He loved to fish. He loved to hunt. That that, that was his, that was his, what he was doing. So he he would work hard, but then he hadn't needed his relaxation. That's kind of what um, like biographers would say about him and stuff like that. Like. Yeah. He can do what needs to be done. He has certain viewpoints, but then he's also he scheduled time to like recharge his batteries. Yeah. So he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Basically, agrees to an armistice, ends Korean War, July 1953. Uh, the return of peace after the Korean War brings really strong economic growth um, to the United States, which is also known as Eisenhower prosperity. Uh, whether it's a causation or correlation tough to, to tell right now however the 50s are a glorious time economically for the united states there's no denying that and his approval rating is like a 79 percent in 1955 well, he's, he's doing a lot of things that people like that he what well, he strengthened social security he raised minimum wage created the department of health the health department of health the department of education department of welfare yeah right he puts in place a lot of the um highway systems right constructed yep. over forty one thousand miles of roads Yep, which is right. also jobs. Um, I mean, these are government jobs. Yeah, these are about. jobs. Yeah, two new. He adds two new states, Alaska and Hawaii. Yep, were admitted during his time. Like, so he did a lot doing there. Um, he signed probably lesser known, right, the Eisenhower Doctrine. Yep, which basically states that any country could request help from the United States. It was being threatened by another country. Doesn't mean we we're going to help them, but it kind of lays a groundwork. Well, for it was also there request on. help through yeah. loans. It was the idea of lending yeah. money to other nations so that what we. Could it was designed to stop stop communism. That's also yeah. what it was. He was okay. also he. Um, he authorized a lot of secret operations against communism by in the CIA. Um, he signed Civil Rights Act in 57 and 60, 
and then enforced the civil it. rights office and enforced it. Yeah, he was big for he. I mean, I guess not as big as what you see later on, but he. African Americans fought in World War II. He had no problem. You know, he was basically saying this, and they they should have the same rights at home. They fought like everyone else did. Yep. And even with regards to like going home with like looking at civil rights, he often said, and he coming from the South and being raised in like a more Southern atmosphere, um, he wasn't necessarily what you by today by at today's standards. He was not at all about like equality. No question about it. No, no. But he was more just like. He was more about, I need to do what the Constitution tells me to do. And if there's That's a law was, yeah. that says that whites and blacks should go to school together, like in Little Rock 9, which is where he sends troops, he's like, he's if like, there's then, a law, think, I will enforce it. Then, then that's what they're going to do. Yeah. It was not like some great moral thing for him. Nope. nope. It was just like, this is the law. I'm going to, you know, his job as chief executive is to enforce the laws. And so, kind of what we talked yeah. about earlier when he was younger. I mean, that was evident in the bonus marchers in 1930s when he's like, yeah. okay, we're going to shoot at you know, World War One veterans to get him out of Washington, D.C. Again, following orders. So, he actually has a heart attack, right, in 55. He does. Get to that. Yeah, go ahead. You want to do that? I mean. Well he, had, well, he had a heart attack in 55, and his health really starts to decline, but he still won a landslide victory in the next presidential election. It was basically, he was still against um, Stevenson. He uh, it was a rematch from the previous election, and he easily wins a, um, a second term. And, Did you um, see this they whole thing in 56? Prosperous so? terms. Yeah, but in 56, he actually didn't want Nixon to run again. So Yeah, he, he was, was not the biggest fan. Yeah. No. And what I was reading is that he was dropping hints to Nixon, like, hey, maybe it'll be great like, if like, you don't run. Maybe I can make you – I'll give you like an important cabinet job. He actually offered Nixon as secretary of defense, and and like he, he said that would be a good way for you to prepare yourself for – a run for the presidency in 1960 because I, I think that would make you put you in a more active role as opposed to just the vice president. Like he was apparently dropping hints to Nixon, like, dude, like, I don't yeah, want you to sad. run with me. Um, and Nixon just didn't get the hint. So Eisenhower was like, well, you know what? I don't want to confront Nixon directly because Nixon apparently was very popular with like the party regulars. So well, I he was like, he was a politician. Yeah. Yeah. I just like, all right, I'll just keep him. And, and they, they win, um, you know, ultimately. But so, I mean, you named a lot of things that happened in his presidency. That was that well. Was I think crazy. another big one I forgot to was the um, kind of kicks off out with the space race, right? Eisenhower creates NASA. He does in response to uh, the Soviets launching Sputnik, Sputnik in October yeah. of 1957. Right, the first man-made um, satellite, right, orbits Earth. Yeah. They sent up another one later on with a dog. What's that dog's name? Laika. 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 Yeah. You hear like, you can you can actually YouTube you can hear like the dog barking from space. Wow. It's dead, but yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. So. No, no. I mean, wow. <laughs> but yeah, but they were all worried about so that it's NASA, right? You, you hear about yeah. NASA all the time. And CIA. Now, yeah. I mean, that's another thing that the CIA, there's this yeah. common misconception. And at the time, there was a misconception that maybe perhaps he wasn't strong enough on communism. You know, the people were looking at, like, you know, Soviet Union is getting in there and they're trying to expand. And what are you doing? But actually, he was very strong in communism. And that, that, has come out a lot more since then because of the creation and reliance on CIA. Uh, so you didn't read in the news how he was battling um, the Soviets because it was all covert operations. I mean, that was his big thing. He was basically trying to fight the Cold War on the cheap, which is what also helped out the U.S. economy because instead of having these big proxy wars and going in and sending soldiers, his big thing was like, hey, like, 
oh, this guy's bad. All right, we'll send the CIA. They'll assassinate him. We'll put a puppet government in there and we'll spend some money on it and they'll do what we want him to do. Yeah, it's better than having a whole army going in. But he was still big on um, nuclear deterrence too. He created that nuclear deterrence triad of having the um, land-based the, the strategic bombers, the intercontinental missiles, and the uh, Polaris submarines. Having those three options, that triad of nuclear deterrent, he was a big supporter of that. So he didn't like nuclear weapons at first. But he realized, you know, we need to have enough of them to ensure that no one else wants to mess with us that way. Yep. What becomes known as MAD later on. Also, a lot of people don't realize this, but it was during Eisenhower where the United States gets involved in Vietnam for the first Vietnam. time. Yeah. People forget about that. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, initially. Like, I don't think he, it was, he didn't foresee it, what, what it was going to become, no, obviously. No. But he's one piece of what you're saying too. Sending in troops, right? Destabilizing a government. Yeah. All that stuff. You know, making sure it doesn't fall to communism. Yeah, and, and that was part of this whole idea of domino theory. Like, he believed, like, all right, if Vietnam was to fall to communism, then perhaps other countries in the area, like Southeast Asia, might fall into communism. And before you know it, Australia and New Zealand might fall into communism. So between 1955 and 61, the United States actually gives $1 billion in economic and military aid to South Vietnam. Um, and the point was to build a stable anti-communist state. And not we're not sending soldiers. Ike's not sending soldiers, but he starts the precedent of looking at vietnam you know you're like okay we'll give you billions of dollars he, he sends some um, 900 um, military advisors there he does yep and he does um after the, the election of 1960 which uh, john f kennedy wins when he's like meeting with john f., when he's meeting with jfk before he um leaves office he basically tells him that listen this is going to be something that um you're going to have to probably deal with at some point is what's going on in southeast asia yep. And he tells Kennedy that he considered Laos the cork in the bottle in regards to the regional threat. Yep. So Kennedy also sends troops, and it doesn't really explode a little bit later with Johnson, but who knows if Kennedy would have survived, what would have happened with Vietnam. Right. Um, the one other crisis that we should kind of mention or brush up and talk a little bit about, I guess two, uh, before we get into him retiring, one was the Suez Canal crisis, um, and the other one was the U2 incident, because those were the two yeah, okay. big foreign policy. Right, so go to the Suez first, then we'll talk about Yeah, so Suez, ultimately, you have um, uh, an Arab nationalist, uh, General Nazar of Egypt, asks the United States for funds to build this dam, right, on the Nile River. And the United States refuses, mainly because they thought that Egypt would, like was threatening Israel's security and we were friendly with Israel. So Nazar turns to Soviet Union for to help build and finance this dam. Um, Soviets agree to give some form of finance for the project, but in order to get more funds, Nazar basically, I mean, creates an international crisis, right? In July 56, he seizes and nationalizes the British and French owned Suez Canal. Um, And because of that, he threatens Western Europe's supply line to the Middle Eastern oil. That's essentially what happens. So Britain, France, and Israel just attack Egypt outright. I mean, they, they mobilized the military and they attacked Egypt. And Eisenhower is furious because he did not yeah. know that this was happening. And it is very obvious at this point that the United States is the most powerful country in the world, that this world is really dictated um, by the United States as well as Soviet Union. So Ike was so angry that he basically put Britain and France back in their place. Like, uh, no, you know, he goes into the UN, condemns the invasion of Egypt and basically tells Britain and France, uh, you just, you're not going to fight he, Egypt. He puts gonna... diplomatic but also financial pressure on them to withdraw yep. from Egypt. Yep. And he talks about this, I think, in his memoirs, too. He says, like, um, strong positions against them. He's like, you're not doing this. Yep. Again, and they, they, they went back. Like he, yeah. 
they, they back also, down because they're like, you can't, we can't go against what they're saying. Did you notice that uh, that was also the precursor to having good relations with Soviet Union? Because Soviet Union was like, he basically he was trying to avoid Soviet Union attacking Britain and France and starting a World War yeah. Three. So Soviet Union is like, yeah, Ike, you're right, and kind of you have this this thawing. No problem. Of, a bit of a, a, there was a little bit of that before anyway because Stalin died, right? But yeah. um, it definitely that definitely was a help. Yeah, when Khrushchev <laughs> took over, it was a little destalinization. Yeah, and they were right? able to kind of like negotiate at some level, at some level. Yeah. So things are it seems like things are going to going friendly between um, Soviet Union and the United States and Ike and, and Khrushchev actually meet. Um, you know things are going well, and you have Khrushchev comes to the United States and he's really excited because he wants to meet Marilyn Monroe, and uh, so they White House invites Marilyn Monroe so they could sit next to each other, and apparently she said that he would just smelled really bad. Um, and now Eisenhower's supposed to go and meet with Khrushchev in the Soviet Union. And it's like, yay, we're going to be friends. Cold War's going to end. And then the U-2 incident happens. Yes. And that kind of changes a lot of these things because they were supposed to actually have a, like you said, it was only 15 days after this and they were supposed to meet. But basically it's uh, May 1st, 1960. The one-man US-2 spy plane is shot down over Soviet airspace. Um, originally, they believe that the pilot, he does survive. And he, um, for instance, Gary Powers, he actually bails out. He's captured by, um, by the Russians. But... Um, like Khrushchev just kind of um, talks about how they, yeah. well, yeah, he flips, but he kind of, when they first make a press release, they say they just captured this aircraft. They, they, they shut down an aircraft. They don't mention anything about a pilot. So he thought that he thought powers died. So he makes up like a false story that it was a, a weather plane flying over Turkey that kind of lost its way and, you know, flew into Soviet airspace. And um, that's not obviously what happened. It was there to you know, spy on them. Yeah. And, um, it wasn't a weather research aircraft and they put captain powers on trial and displayed parts of YouTube plane, uh, which was mostly pretty much intact. And, yeah. um, the four powers summit in Paris was, uh, collapsed because of its incident. Yeah. Because, because they, Eisenhower refused to, uh, accede to, he wanted Khrushchev to basically apologize. And Eisenhower was like, no, I'm not going to apologize. So then Khrushchev's not coming to the summit and then why even yeah. have it? So. Yep. Yeah, because apparently the United States was was telling them, oh, we're, we're not spying you guys anymore. Like, let's be friends. Let's end this Cold War. And boom, our spy plane gets shut down, you know, which is like the top technology at the time, too, which is another issue. Yeah, they, they couldn't be shot down. It was, you know, they were able yeah. to counteract it. So Eisenhower ultimately, he steps down. I mean, it's two terms, right? So this is it. Two for terms. Him. That's it. Yeah. He's not doing a Roosevelt. And he, no, uh, no. Well, he couldn't, right? Because during Truman's, that's when they passed yeah, they, they, 22nd they Amendment. Yeah, they passed 22nd Amendment. Right. That's true. Never mind. Yeah, 22nd, so he couldn't. Um, anyway, as you mentioned, so he, he steps down, but he does provide advice to, to JFK quite often um, and even consults frequently later on with uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, and he lived technically to see Nixon elected before he passed away from um, another heart attack, but and he was the first president to get a lifetime pension after he left too, and get um, yep. the former president's act a lifetime secret service. So he retires to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, um, where he plays golf and paints. That was his biggie. I don't know if you saw that, he was forever a painter. Yeah, he painted. Paint I think he painted over two hundred. Painted a lot of like uh, former presidents. That was like his thing too. He liked to do a lot of like Washington and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so he suffers another major heart attack in 1965. Um, he actually does attend 
JFK's funeral after the assassination. There's there's pictures of him at the funeral. Um, then himself, 65, suffers this heart attack. By 68, his health completely deteriorates. So he winds up spending nine months in Walter Reed Army Hospital um, until he dies there in March 28th, 1969. They said the day of his death, he basically like commanded his family more or less like he would command troops. Like they said, he ordered the doctors and nurses attending him like, all right, lower the shades, pull me up to a sitting position. Like he was just barking orders. And then he held his wife's hand and looked at his son and grandson and basically said, I want to go. God, take me. Um, and then he um, he died. Passed away, yeah. And, and it's interesting. Do you see this? That his um, well, actually not see this. We probably know this, but he did not only see all. He not only saw Richard Nixon elected president, but also his grandson's marriage to Julie Nixon. Yes, they were talking about that. Yeah, yeah. And Nixon actually you um utilized Eisenhower. I like this quote. He says, uh, "Some men are considered great because they lead great armies or they lead powerful nations." For eight years now, Dwight Eisenhower has neither commanded an army nor led a nation, and yet he remained through his final days the world's most admired and respected man, truly the first citizen of the world. So he, he was respected after the presidency. I mean, I think historians give his presidency a pretty positive light, even though there was a lot of talk he was like a do-nothing president. Yeah. I wouldn't really say that. I think he did do a lot. We just talked about it. We'll get into a few other things, I'm sure. Yeah. And of course, he gives that speech at the end where they talk about uh, the military when he warns of the military industrial complex. Oh, uh, huge. We can't just huge. Skip over uh, actually, if you guys get a chance, YouTube it. Um, he basically says that there should be no industry in the United States that is tasked with the production of war goods in time of peace. Because he said that if we start making tanks and weapons and bullets when we are at peace, then those corporations would pressure the United States government to go into yeah. wars and conflicts so they could continue their production. Yeah, because um, wars make money. Yeah, they yeah. You need to you need to make those missiles and bullets. It's, and a, it's a really and stuff like that. it's an interesting thing to for an Your outgoing Republican, yeah, conservative Republican, to say that, yeah. post general to say this. You know, in this speech, that's yes, why it's uh, so general. That's the thing. Figure would have a lot of like clout that way, right? A, a general, right. the general. Forget about a general. He was a five star general, right? Yep. So yeah, he's a five star general. It's just a guy that's like saying. You know, uh, we need to chill with war and not produce so many war goods. Like, it was powerful. It's a powerful speech. So, I guess a few, uh, few little things about his life before we get going. Um, we mentioned or alluded to this at the beginning. His real name was actually David Dwight Eisenhower, but his father's name was also David. And they didn't, his mom didn't want him to be known as David Jr. Because the father had a different middle name, was David Jacob Eisenhower versus David Dwight Eisenhower. So she basically, after already naming him David Dwight Eisenhower, she's like, ah, we don't want you need two Davids. So then she switched it to Dwight David Eisenhower. Another fun thing that I found was that, as I mentioned this before, he never ever saw active combat whatsoever, which is crazy because place. he technically served in both world wars. Well, because he was in the army. Like another thing was he they. During their first um, 35 years of marriage, they moved 30 times. Like, they never purchased a permanent home until after he became president. Like, he was basically a nomad. He never lived anywhere permanently. He was just always all over the place because he was in the military. So, that's crazy. Right? Uh, Camp David, the Camp David, is named after Eisenhower's grandson, David. Yep. It was basically the, the. presidential retreat now right like they go there yep. to to this day well, they, have, hear, they, have, they have meetings there obviously too yeah but to this day yeah and it's like you know camp david so now you know why it's called camp david uh ike holded that after his grandson um 
what else? Uh, we we already talked about the fact that his son died from the fever. Yeah, very early on. Well, yeah. Another thing is like historians, like we said. I think in a recent poll, he's actually top ten as considered the top ten presidents of uh, all time. He was the first president ever to ride in a helicopter on July twelfth, nineteen fifty-seven. So kind of scary when you think about it. It's like new technology. Well, some yeah, new try technology. This out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he he said he used helicopters all the time to um, fly from Camp David to his. He has a he had a farm in um, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So you always fly a helicopter. I think when a helicopter, the president on a helicopter is called Marine One. Huh. Nice little bit of a. Cool, 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 cool. Jeopardy question there. Indeed, indeed. All right. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I what, you got anything else? I mean, I think this pretty much covers Ike. Yeah, it covers, it covers a lot of Ike. I mean, I think he's one of those presidents that people look back on and they're going to look at that time and it's just going to be a time of transition. It's a time of like the baby boom and stuff like that going on in America. And he's definitely a uh, individual that who was going to think this little, you know, boy from eight, born in 1890, right? Little Ike becomes probably like a very influential person in, during his life. Yeah. I mean, in 2009. Commander, commander of D-Day and everything else. And, yeah. And then I just was going to make a joke. In 2009, he was named to the World Golf Hall of Fame uh, for with a lifetime achievement category for his contribution to making the sport popular in the United States. Oh, so there the you dude go. Just play golf. Yeah, that's probably one of the things he'd be most likely. That and killing squirrels. Killing squirrels. That's what's up. Um. So yeah. So this is Ike. Um. I mean, we were kind of thinking like, hey, you know what? It's been a while since we did a president. So, and there's so many presidents we could have done, but we thought Ike. Ike just seemed appropriate because it wasn't just yeah. about presidency with Ike. It was about a national figure, a national hero, really. Um. So this is Yeah. Ike, he was Ike the time. Because he won. He won those presidencies. On because his, of his uh, merit, yeah, because of his military. popularity, yeah, they more like his policies. People aren't even sure what his policies were because even though he was a Republican, I would say he didn't really have just all Republican policies. Yeah, you know, crazy. Anyway, so that's, well, that's it, it. I think so. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in once more. If you ever have a question or want to check out some of our other episodes, you could visit us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. And I guess that's it. So until next week, guys, have a nice week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.